Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Kyle Carpenter Podcast. Dan, I have to say, if you don't have the best office view in New York City, I don't know who does. Thank you, Kyle. It, it is, uh, I know it is a great view, and I feel very lucky to be here. I wish all of you listening could see this right now, but we are not only doing this podcast from the Metropolitan Museum of Art, or the Met, as many of you know, but outside we are surrounded by the beautiful Central Park. Sir, thank you for your time today and for this incredible opportunity. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. You have been president and CEO of the Met since 2015? Yeah. Which, of course, is extremely impressive. But what's even more impressive is the amount of education you earned before your position here even began. You have a bachelor's degree from George Washington, a master's from Yale, and a PhD and a master's from Johns Hopkins. What drives you to continue learning? I I should say, but from the outset, that as a younger person, as a high school student, and as a kid, I wasn't a good student. I wasn't particularly interested in being in the classroom. So I found myself very often, as a child, wanting to be almost anywhere else. But I always loved learning nonetheless, and I liked to read, and I was interested in ideas. I grew up in a family where people valued education. So when I got to college and I began to discover the value of classroom learning and how it could connect to helping me really to have the life of my dreams if I pursued my educational goals successfully, I came to associate my love for learning with also the value of education. And after I finished school, I did various things as I was trying to figure out what kind of career I wanted to have. I came to continue to value learning all the time. It's what really makes life interesting is the opportunity to discover that every day can bring new and fresh things into our lives. I love this education piece, and I started out with it because out of the things that I've done and I guess you could say accomplished in my life so far, my degree is by far my most proud accomplishment. And on one hand, that's because, you know, I was learning how to be a Medal of Honor recipient, a wounded warrior. I was just really learning about life after getting out of the military. So not just sticking with it as many people were pulling me different directions. But as I've realized after obtaining that degree, that education is the one thing that you earn completely on your own, of course, with the help of professors and people at the school, but from your hard work alone. And it's the one thing that people can never take away from you. That's very interesting. I never really thought about it that way. Uh, It is something you do in a solitary way. You have to get up each day and do the work and make sure you're, you're achieving the goals each day. Uh, I don't know if I thought about it that way when I was doing it, but I certainly took pleasure and satisfaction in the accomplishments of pursuing an education and working towards a degree. So you're right to say it that way. I hadn't just not thought about it, but that's great. Beyond your degrees, you have also served as the president of two colleges or universities, and you were the dean of the School of Arts and Sciences at Johns Hopkins University. How did those positions of leadership prepare you for your job here at the Met? Well, it, 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 it's a, it was an interesting transition. I had been in higher ed for most of my adult life. I was a, a university professor, and then I became a department head in my department at Johns Hopkins. And then I was a dean, as you mentioned, and then a president for 10 years. So I had a lot of experience in higher ed. And when I came to the Met, I didn't really know how much of those experiences and skills would transfer, transfer here. They, I'd never worked in a museum before. This was my first job in a museum. And I would say about half of what I did there, I do here. A lot of what we do in what I would call mission-driven institutions, like uh, universities or museums that are nonprofit. They're focused on advancing the goals of the organization but not making a profit each year. That about half of what I do is based on the same principles. Uh, One of them is called shared governance, and that's the idea that I'm the leader, And this is different from the military by necessity. I'm the leader 
of the organization, but I have to work closely with the board of trustees. I have to work with the faculty, the students, if they're students, and various groups, and I have to bring them all together in more of what I would describe as a political sense. If you don't win those people over and you don't get their votes, you can't lead because they don't actually listen to you. They don't really work for you. And so you have to make sure they understand the value of what you're trying to accomplish. I brought that, that's the same here as it was in higher education. So those kinds of skills made, uh, made it easier for me to make the transition. But an art museum has a very different public profile. It has a different operational set of requirements than say a university does. And so I found that to be very refreshing because in the same way in your own career, each of the things you have done, you have brought with you some of the things you knew from the last thing you did. You're also in some new territory, learning new things, learning to be a writer, learning to do media, learning to uh, be a supporter of the organizations that you support is different from say being in the military. And I had that same experience here and I really loved it. I, there's something about, for me, as a leader, I've always loved getting up in the morning knowing, you know, there's a reasonable chance I'm gonna do something wrong today because I don't know what exactly is expected of me and therefore I need to be sharp. I need to pay attention, I need to learn. And um, so I'd say about half of what I did I knew and the other half was all brand new for me. I think that's a great lesson and one that I should focus on more, uh, especially with this podcast. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a balancing act, preparing and also leaving enough room for the conversation to go where it may and have that flexibility. But I, although I know you, nothing is perfect and you can't achieve perfection, you know, especially, you know, for myself, but especially for my guests who spend their valuable time with me. I just want to do it so right. But I also should take more from that lesson that, and everyone should take from that lesson that it's okay, it's understandable, and it's to be expected that you're going to mess things up, especially in a new position. And one of such responsibility and and as you alluded to earlier, so many people working around you doing so many various things. And so um, maybe everyone just give yourself a little bit of a break. And as long as you're making your best effort, it's okay to embrace those mistakes. When I started my career as an academic leader, I got great advice from one of the people I most admired, who was a university president who had uh, had a great career. And he said to me, do not spend your time worrying about making mistakes. I guarantee you, you'll make them. If you worry about it all the time, you're gonna to be too risk averse, too careful. You're, you're not gonna be able to, make, to do the work you need to do. What you need to do is own your mistakes and fix them. So when you make them, own up to it and then figure out how to move forward. And I have always found that to be extraordinarily liberating advice because I don't worry about making mistakes. And I've learned from experience that when you do, if you tell people, I made a mistake, I did this wrong, more often than not, almost invariably, they support you. They often find it disarming that you're willing to own it and, and admit it. So we all, anybody who, who pursues a career that involves growth and new learning, you're gonna make mistakes, even if you, you aren't doing new things. So understanding that you can just call it out and fix it is a lot more liberating than feeling so terrible if you make them. And let me say one thing about podcasts, if I may. Not that I'm an expert, but I've done quite a few. I hate me either, so it's okay. <laughs> well, I think that run, leading a podcast is actually harder than being interviewed because your job is to determine how you want that conversation to go, how long it should be, what issues you want to cover, and you don't have any control over what the person you're interviewing is going to say. You'd like to do it within a certain time frame. You'd like to maintain a certain spirit of discussion. All of that is the responsibility of the person running the podcast. All I have to do is show up and talk about myself. That isn't that hard. So I think mastering that, that craft is there's much more to it. You do it extraordinarily well already, and you're being too hard on yourself. But in fact, there's a lot that goes on to make it successful. 
You couldn't have said that more perfectly. And I, I appreciate that because a lot does go into it and a lot of thought and a, many, many hours going over all of the things that you just said. So that, that does mean a lot. And one last point on growth and making mistakes. Someone said to me a few months ago that growth and comfort cannot coexist. And that really stuck out to me and I've held on to that. But That's a very interesting idea. And we all benefit by being a little uncomfortable. If, we, if you're comfortable all the time, you get lazy in yeah. how you act and how you think. Absolutely. Never thought about that. I said job in my previous question, but I feel like that's a significant understatement because, and to help people understand why job just doesn't quite fit, can you please describe the vastness of size and historical significance of the Met? Sure. It is a, it is a remarkable institution. I've been here eight years and I still find it somewhat astonishing that they gave me the keys to run it because it is an amazing place. I remember coming here as a kid and feeling awestruck just coming in the building. It never in a million years would have occurred to me that someday I'd have a chance to work here. So the Met is, let's talk a little bit about the dimensions of the Met. The, the Met is about 152 years old. We have a million and a half works of art extending back from the beginning of recorded history and civilization. So we have works of art. We have some that go back 20, 30,000 BC. But most of them, 95% of our collection goes from about 3,500 BC to the present day. So more than 5,000 years of recorded history. We have the most extensive encyclopedic collection of art on the planet. And as I say, we, we, our goal is to represent cultural production and achievement from every civilization and society that ever lived. We, we don't have all of them, but that's our goal. But we have art from all, all over the world and all across history. And as a result, our staff is extraordinarily large because we have to have expertise to study all of those things. We have the largest art conservation resources in the world for one museum. And in fact, if you were with us in the studio to our listeners and you're looking out the window, you could see in the windows of some of the other uh, parts of the Met, you can see people who are working on art conservation right now. Their job is to protect the works of art, to repair them if they need repair, to prepare them for exhibition and display. Our responsibility, which is a kind of remarkable thing, is to collect and preserve art so that it can live forever. That is, we're supposed to be caring for these objects so that they will, they will be in good condition forever. And that's a very daunting responsibility. Our museum building itself is the largest art museum in the world. And um, so those are some dimensions of, of what this place is all about. And with a million and a half plus artifacts spanning that 5,000 years of history, this might be a difficult question, if not impossible, but what are some of the most notable or well-known works of art that are held here? Well, it, no, it's a great question. Um, one of the things that, that distinguishes us, say, from the Louvre in Paris, which is the closest museum to the Met in terms of size, ambition, service to the public, the Louvre has one of the great, great collections of any museum in the world. It's, it's extraordinary. But they also have the Mona Lisa, and so lots and lots of people come to the Louvre, and they kind of walk through the building just looking for the Mona Lisa, and then they leave, and they miss the rest of it. We don't have a Mona Lisa-like object here. We have lots of masterpieces that people come to see. We have one of the largest collections of Rembrandt, the great Netherlandish artist, Dutch artist, uh, anywhere in the world. We have the largest collection of Vincent van Gogh's paintings of any art museum outside of of Amsterdam. And indeed, if you were to ask me who's the most popular artist in the museum, it is Vincent van Gogh. People come from all over the world to see his work. We have an extraordinary collection of Impressionist painting, the largest outside of France. And we have collections of Greek and Roman art from the ancient world, from the time of Marcus Aurelius and Caesar. Uh, we have Chinese art from Asia, Japan, Korea, masterpieces all. So in any direction, if we were to amble around the museum, 
any direction you would choose, we could go into a gallery and see works of art that are at the highest level of their culture. And what we're very proud of is one and a half million works of art, they're all here for a reason. They're not all equally good, but most of them are extraordinarily good. And we, our aim is to have the best examples of the cultural production of every society. So there are masterpieces in every gallery. And for me, I'm an art historian, I have a PhD, but there's a ton I don't know. So every day I go into some gallery and I learn something about a work of art I knew nothing about. And that's fun too. Well, every single one of those are unbelie- equally as unbelievable. And you also have Egyptian relics, which, you know, that is, uh, that's even, you know, more next level to think about. Everyone knows about the pyramids, but, you know, to really think about, you know, Egyptian relics being here in New York City from so many thousands of years ago. You're right. It, I should have mentioned that. Our Egyptian collection is a good example of what makes the Met so brilliant. We have the largest collection of Egyptian art outside of Egypt and we've been building it for more than 100 years. And a lot of what we have are things that were excavated in Egyptian tombs, because that's where lots of Egyptian art was put into tombs. But we have things, we have masterpieces, we have works of architecture, we have a temple in the building. If we have time later, we'll go over and see it. We have a whole temple that was moved block by block from Egypt to New York City. It's amazing. But we also have things like linens, bed linens, sheets, and blankets that were found in the tombs because when an Egyptian person died, the expectation was that they would go to the afterlife. So they needed everything you need, like you're going on a vacation or you you need somewhere to sleep, clothes to wear, all that stuff. And so we have sheets and blankets that are 3,000, 4,000 years old and they're in such good condition, you would look at them and you'd say, well, they're a little dusty, but I could use that. I mean, it works. That's how strong this collection is. It has everything. And we're very proud of that. No matter what the artwork is or the structure or the tomb, when it comes to the logistics of bringing that across the world, I mean, from the security to the transportation and, and the protection around the actual object, how does that even happen? Well, it's, that's also a great question. When we borrow works of art, and we do it all the time for an exhibition, or lend works of art, or buy works of art, these are objects that might be worth, an individual object could be worth 50 million, 100 million, 200 million dollars. So every time we send a work of art, we send a courier with it. That's somebody responsible for making sure that work of art is in good shape. If it's a big work of art and it's going on a plane, then the courier will stand on the tarmac and make sure that that object, which is packed in a crate, is properly loaded. And then they'll go sit in the plane and make the trip. And when they land, that curator will go down on the tarmac to make sure it's properly taken off the plane. Every step of the way, they make sure that it's in good condition because these things are very fragile. Many of them are hundreds or thousands of years old. So if we're going to move them, we need to make sure they're okay. But the temple, this is an interesting little story. In the 1960s and 70s, the American government worked very hard to help the Egyptian government build a hydroelectric dam system in Egypt to improve the ability to deliver electricity throughout the country. And the result of that was that they were going to be flooding a region of of Egypt that would cause several ancient temples to to go under the water to be flooded. So the, the Egyptian government said to Lyndon Johnson, who was our president at that time, He'd like to make a gift of a temple to the United States in expression of thanks for this help because that temple was going to be uh, inundated anyway. So Lyndon Johnson had to decide. There were two, peop- two groups that wanted it. The Metropolitan wanted it and the Smithsonian did. And according to the, the legends I've heard, uh, the Smithsonian was going to put it on the banks of the Potomac and the Met said, we'll build a museum for it, a structure for it. And ultimately, Lyndon Johnson decided to give it to us. So when those stones came, when they first came, they were just blocks of stone. They don't look so great when they're all disassembled. They just sat in a parking lot with a tarp over them until we we built a wing for them. And then we put all these blocks back together again, and, and it's a magnificent structure. 
but it was a little bit of a process to get them here. Hundreds and hundreds of blocks of stone, each separated from you know, the structure. And then a little bit like Legos, they had to be put back in exactly the way they were disassembled. Wow. Well, I was not expecting the tarp and the parking lot piece of it, but no. that is a fascinating story. And you mentioned responsibility earlier. What is that responsibility or weight of responsibility like? Because most of us do good to take care of our emails every day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I feel that weight of responsibility. I, of course, I felt it as a, as a college president as well. Here at the Met, and in any job that involves human beings, the first responsibility is to make sure that you're taking care of the well-being of the people who are here. Prior to COVID, and the world is very different now since COVID, but prior to COVID, we would have more than 7 million guests, public visitors, come to the museum every year. And we have thousands of staff. So I'm very mindful that all of those people who come into this building to interact with us have to have a good experience. It has to be safe and secure and interesting and rewarding for them. So I think first and foremost about all of those things, including safety and security. When you have that many people walking through your building, there are all kinds of risks you have to be alert to. For us, that challenge is not just the health and safety of the people. We're not a train station, but a little bit like a train station, you've got a lot of people walking through the building and bad actors can do things. We also have an art collection that could be damaged through bad behavior. And very often, that kind of damage is hard to repair. So we also have to protect the art. At the same time, we want people to feel comfortable here. When you walk into a bank, you sort of want to see that it's really safe and secure, because that's where your money is. Uh, and there are many places where you want to see armed guards, and you want to see a lot of heavy walls. But in an art museum, that's not what people want to see. They want to get lost in the experience of looking at art and then forget where they are and be transported to new places and new worlds. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to do that if there's a security guard with a machine gun standing behind you. So on the one hand, we want bad actors to know we are watching, we are being alert, you're not going to get away with this. But at the same time, we want the public to feel comfortable. So we work very hard at creating a safe and secure environment that is also welcoming. So I think about that responsibility. And then finally, I guess I recognize that I'm CEO of one of the most important collections of art ever assembled in the history of the world. And if something bad happens here on my watch, we lose something for civilization. If this museum disappeared from the landscape today and everything in it, the world would never be the same. All of these great treasures that were produced by 5,000 years of, of human beings all over the planet would be gone. So I, I feel the sense of that responsibility for that not to happen very, in a very significant way. Uh, it doesn't disable me. It doesn't make me unable to do my job. But I think about it, and I want to make sure that we're taking care of what we need to take care of. When something needs to be fixed or when there's a problem with something, we fix it. We don't waste a lot of time. That is heavy because <laughs> yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, completely irreplaceable. But I think anyone that just listened to that probably has sweaty palms and they have nothing to do with the management of this museum. And you've alluded to some of it, but when it comes to the day-to-day -day operations of managing the MEP, what are the different teams or departments, and how do their responsibilities break down? Well, we're a very big, complicated place, as I said. I sometimes describe the Met as more like an, a cultural university than an art museum. We're so much larger than most art museums that we look more like a university does in terms of departments. So I'll take you through our structure. We have about 2,000 people who work here. We have 55 different departments that do different things. Of those 55, 17 of them are curatorial departments. And curatorial departments are responsible for the art. And so we divide that up in various ways. There's a Department of Asian Art, there's a Department of American Art, that kind of thing. And the whole collection, every object that we take in, goes into one of those curatorial departments for their oversight. 
And so even though I'm the CEO of the museum, if I wanted to do something with a work of art or borrow it from my office or whatever, I don't have the authority to do that. The curators do. I ask them. It's their collection. That's their responsibility. It's a little bit like if you go into a hospital and a, the head of the hospital wants to talk about a patient, you ask the doctor. The doctor's responsible for that patient. So these objects are under the care of the curators. And those 17 curatorial departments take care of a million and a half works of art. We then have six conservation departments. And their job, as, as I said, was to take clean works of art, fix them, help them be in their best condition to make sure that they're going to last as long as they can last, ideally forever. There are all kinds of things that can happen to works of art. If they're made of an organic material over thousands of years, that will deteriorate. So we have to figure out how to prevent that. There are paintings that have to be maintained on fragile surfaces. So those six departments do different things. Paintings, paper, photographs, sculptures, all the categories, uh, we, including clothing. We have a department that oversees just what we call cost, the Costume Institute, but it's clothing, mostly women's clothing, but not entirely. And so that those six departments are conservation. We have a publisher here. We publish books like a university press does. We publish about 30 books a year, uh, and they're considered the gold standard of museum book publishing in the world. We have a digital department that presents all of our content on our website and on Instagram and all the things that, the ways in which we connect with each other virtually, we have a significant commitment there. And we have a library, we have one of the largest art libraries in the world. So you add up all those things, we have this enormous resource and staff dedicated to the care, well-being, study, presentation of art. That's one side. The other side is this place is a business too. We have a roof to take care of. We have to open our doors every day. We collect admissions. We have financial management. We have an, an endowment that's nearly $5 billion. We have to invest it and make sure we're getting the right returns for it. So the business side of the museum, there's another 25 or so departments that do that. And that looks a little bit more like the kinds of businesses most of us are familiar with. Marketing, finance, legal department, human resources, that sort of security. And my job is to make sure all those parts are working productively and together, and we're actually opening our doors every day. Because we have such great people that they take care of that pretty well. Well, probably the least fun category out of all of those, and for any business or museum, is the financial aspect. I think most people know that it obviously costs money to run anything in the world, but especially museums. With that said, and when it comes to that annual operating budget, what measures are taken to make sure it is used as efficiently as possible? Well, I like the way you asked that question because that, I think, is the responsibility. All of the money we have, all of the resources we have here, come to us primarily through acts of generosity and support, that people want this museum to thrive. We have some revenue-generating activities, like we have a retail operation and that sort of thing, but mostly we are an institution dedicated to philanthropy at one form or another. And that means we have to make extra sure that we're using the resources as best we can, because they're gifts from other people. And so the financial side of this is to make sure that we have sustainable budgets, that we're not spending more money than we can afford to spend, and that we're meeting the needs in the near term of paying our staff and opening the doors and buying the art and all of that. But we are also an institution that I sometimes refer to as a perpetual institution. And that means our job, in theory, is to live forever. That businesses, that is not the goal of a business. The goal of a business, Exxon or Saks Fifth Avenue or any business is to maximize profitability so that it can be a, a functioning member of the economy and society. But whether those businesses last forever or not isn't their main concern. But we are stewards of the cultural heritage of the planet. That's what we do. We take care of the, the greatest artistic achievements ever made. And therefore, our job is to make sure that they're cared for and available to the public forever. 
And so from a budgeting point of view, we have to think about the long term. I'll give you an example. Again, if everybody was in my office with me, you could see this. But right out the window behind you, Kyle, you will see several acres of skylights. Those are glass panels that are placed over the roofs of the European Paintings Department of the museum. And so there's about six acres of them out there somewhere. Those skylights were installed in the 1930s. And by about the time Lyndon Johnson was president in the 1960s, they were supposed to be replaced. They were worn out. But because doing that was so difficult and so expensive, they just kept putting it off. And that project to replace them was just completed about a year ago. We just did it recently. And that's because when you take the long-term view that you have to take for an institution like this, you have to be making investments that allow the museum to be in good shape even after you leave. And that's a responsibility I take very seriously, the near term and the longer term. If you don't balance the budget, if you don't live within your means, then you end up having various kinds of um, disruptive events that is very destabilizing to the people who work here and to the audiences we serve. So I try to avoid that. You mentioned the endowment fund, but is there a publicly funded aspect to that? Yeah, it, it's, we're a great funding model, and we're not that different from many museums in this country. When you think about how the Met gets its operating funds, there are a handful of resources that we draw on. We have our endowment, which I mentioned, which is our savings account. It's worth right now almost $5 billion. We're allowed to spend about up to about 5% of what that's worth. The goal is we invest it, we get the returns. It's the returns that we use to operate the museum on a day-to-day -day basis. Collectively, that endowment covers about half of our budget. The other half we get in other ways. We have people pay admission to come to the museum. We have a gift shop. We have membership programs. And some people, they give us money just to support the place because they care about us. So beyond all of that, we also get money from the city government, and we always have. In fact, we are, seated, we are located on land owned by the city. We're in Central Park, at, right in the middle of Manhattan, in Central Park, which is a city park. And the building itself is owned by the city of New York. We take care of it. Our job is to support it. And, but that is to say the private sector. But it, we work in partnership with the government. They own the building. And when we have to make major repairs, they usually pay a, fair, a share of it and we raise the rest of it. So we work with in partnership with the government. From an operating budget point of view, the city government pays a little bit less than 10%. And we pay the rest in all the ways I described. And I think that's a good model. I think it works well for various reasons. And in some fashion, most museums in this country other than the Smithsonian, which is a government entity, most others do it the way we do it. And does a board of directors determine that spending limit, or do they provide the oversight and regulations, I guess? Yes, they do. They, they set within the parameters of the law, because there are limitations on, government limitations on how you can spend endowment. But the board determines specifically the spending rate. The board oversees how we invest it to make sure we're meeting the right obligations. And the board, of course, has oversight over me, and uh, they're responsible for the financial health of the institution. Mm. Yeah, and I agree that's a great model because it's very advantageous for both parties as far as the state and the city and the museum to you know, keep a really good relationship and help each other out. Because, you know, with the 7 million annual visitors, which I'm sure, you know, a percentage of those primarily probably come to visit New York City. Uh, one of the main reasons is to visit the MEP. Uh, and, you know, just keeping that good relationship uh, probably goes far beyond the financial aspects. It, exactly, it does. It, it, financially, it, we're very important to the city for tourism, and it's just as you said, we, we're an important engine of the economy. But we also work together in other ways to make sure the city is doing well in terms of all the things that it requires for a city and a community to function well. And I'm proud of the fact that lots of people think of New York as a big, complicated place, and it can be impersonal. But this, this museum has had a really strong relationship with the city government 
pretty much from the outset. And mayors come and mayors go, but and presidents of the museum come and go, but there's respect on both sides for what a good partnership can be. And they always wanna help us, and they always want us to be successful. I'm very, I'd say I'm proud of that. I didn't make it happen, but I'm proud to be part of it because it wouldn't, doesn't have to be that way. And there are lots of cities where it doesn't work that way, but it does here. And I have one more financial question, but it's actually for those listening. During your time here, you have helped raise well over a billion dollars. There are a lot of people out there in positions with the job of raising capital, whether that is for museums, private firms, or nonprofits. How do you approach this aspect of your job and what advice would you give to those in similar positions? Well, as you say, fundraising for organizations like museums and universities and other, call them charities or mission-driven organizations, is a big part of the job. And I think the most important key to being successful as a fundraiser is a couple of things. First, most good fundraising is relationship building. Nobody ever gives money to an organization when they don't like the people. They just don't. Even if they love the mission, they're, they're just not going to be inclined to support it if they don't have confidence in the people or they don't like them. So it's important to build relationships that are respectful. Ideally, and I have many, many friends who are donors to the museum. They don't have to be friends, but to build warm human relationships. Because after all, what fundraising is really about, it's providing opportunities for people who care about something to support it. You never raise money from people who don't care about what you're doing. That's another thing. See, people often ask me, don't you hate asking people for money? I mean, isn't that creepy to do that? And the answer is that's not how it works. The way it works is you identify people who have some interest in what you're doing. You get to know them. You talk to them about your mission and your work. You learn from them what they care about. And if they have resources and they want to be philanthropic, that's a condition. I mean, not everybody who has money wants to give it away, but many do. Then you see if you can find something in your organization that's meaningful to them. And at the Met, there are millions of things people can support. We have people who love our library. They don't care that much about art, but they care about the library, so they support that. We have people who love Italian painting. We have people who love contemporary sculpture and, or educational programs for school children. So the goal is to connect them with programs and ideas that are important to them. And when you find that, so if they have respect for the organization and they like you enough to believe in you, and you find something that's meaningful to them, then it's very easy to ask for money because they want to give it to you. They, they want to support what, what it is. It makes them happy to do that. If there's something in the genius of American society that that's not typical everywhere else in the world. Other museums around the world are not supported by philanthropy the way they are here. This is, this is the most generous country in the history of human beings. So the chance to have those discussions with people is such a privilege and to see what it can enable. This whole museum is an act of charity, one after another. Thousands and thousands of them created this monument that started from an idea and nothing else. So I think that idea about fundraising is um, to build on what makes it meaningful to the organization and to have fun and it finds its way. Yeah, that's beautiful. Relationships first, and the money will follow. Exactly. If right. they want to donate. Yeah. If, if but a lot of times, you probably don't even have to have that conversation. They just reach out, and and because what you're saying, they believe in the mission, and they want to help. That's exactly right. It, and I will confess, it's easier to do fundraising at the Met because how famous we are and how great our collection is, than it might be in a small museum that people don't know about. So the challenges vary from place to place, but the principles do not vary. Right. It's the people. Right. Exactly. Later this year, your time as president and CEO of the MEP will be coming to a close. As a leader at the top of any large organization, you don't always get to personally interact with every person and employee under you. So is there anything you would like to share with those that you have worked with here that might be listening? Oh, I, <laughs> it's 
a wonderful question, and I thank you for asking it, Kyle. I have to say, we've had a lot of difficult times here over the last several years. We had financial problems when I got here, which took a few years. Then we had COVID. Then we had all the social unrest after the, the, the murder of George Floyd. We had all these things. But I have always marveled at and taken such inspiration from the dedication and talent of the people who work here, all of them. And I walk the halls of this building. I've never worked in a place like this where everybody brings value to this place, and they love this place. There's something very special about working at the Met, which is different from many other jobs. It's not just a, they may not just have a good job, but they have a good job at a place they really love. Most of the other places I worked, they might have a good job, but they're happy to do it somewhere else if they can get a better deal. But here, they want to be here. So what I want to say to the folks is how much I appreciate the friendship and support they've shown me, and the example that they have set by their own dedication, which inspires me. I have a great job. I'm very lucky to have this role. But I find inspiration and strength in seeing the ways in which everybody here is so committed to making the Met what it is, which is the premier cultural institution of its kind in the world. I have very little to do with that. They do. They're the ones who make it happen. Um, so I'm grateful to them, and I'm inspired by them. Aside from academic roles and your time here at the MAP, you also serve on the Council on Foreign Relations. Just to give people a better understanding, what is that and what is its purpose? So the Council on Foreign Relations is one of the preeminent places in the world, and certainly in the United States, for careful discussion, deliberation, and debate about issues of global importance. And it brings together people, leaders from all strata of society, people who are interested directly in uh, international affairs, diplomats, ambassadors, cabinet members, people like that. But also others, business leaders, people like me, art museum guys. And the chance is, it provides an opportunity for, for us to increase our own learning and to add to the value and knowledge of the world on these questions. So if there's a difficult political issue taking place in the world, the Council on Foreign Relations will invariably organize a session to talk about that at a high level, using with the experts who know most, to educate the membership, but also to see if we can generate new thinking about these issues. They also conduct research, to support and sponsor research and publish books, so the Council on Foreign Relations is one of the most important engines of progress in international affairs within the United States. And I'm assuming there's full-time people there. It's not just convening together when a certain issue arises. It's a continuous momentum forward of always trying to become better and you know, educate people on issues. Yes, it has resident administrative staff and scholars. It has expertise that work there. The membership is probably several thousand people around the United States and around the world. And I'm a member, so I can show up for events and listen and learn. But then they have uh, staff members who conduct research and uh, engage in all kinds of programs to fulfill the mission of the Council of Foreign Relations. And it's actually a fairly large operation. And how did you become part of that? So it's a membership organization. And shortly after I came to New York and I expressed some interest in learning more about it, some members proposed that I join. So they sponsored me for membership. It's an elective organization. And so you go through a process of review. And fortunately, I got elected to join. And I guess my only regret has been I have had so many demands on my time at the museum that I don't go to as many events there as I'd like to. But they, they sponsor significant events every single week. There's something going on. that they're, they're located here in New York, just a few blocks from here. And I could go a couple nights a week. Wow. So I don't have as much time for that as I would like, but they do good work. Well, that's great to hear that, um, I mean, just beside the job that they do and what they strive for, in helping the world, uh, that it's not a once a month thing, not a once a year thing, that it's very regular. And that's great. You know, just like uh, we were talking about people and relationships earlier, 
good things happen when good people get together that want to do good. Well said. That's a nice way of putting it. That's exactly what they aim to do. So many of the people who are doing the work at this moment were the people who are in the last governmental administration. So the Secretary of State in the Trump administration or the Obama administration or whatever might be involved at the, in the council now. So we have people who have the highest level of experience and expertise, and the goal is to do good in the world, just as you said. To add to your list of professional endeavors, you have wrote numerous books on varying topics, but one of which being about the war in Vietnam. Now, I understand everyone that this is a hard pivot, but I believe as a veteran and a student of history, a necessary one. Because over the years, I have heard ill-informed and at times frustrating comments pertaining to the Vietnam War. And I guess first, let us know when that book is coming out. But I do see the difficulty though, of not having a firm understanding because there was a lot going on and it was a very politically charged time in our country and the world to the point of being overwhelming. We had the Vietnam War, the hippie and anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, Nixon and Watergate, which added to the questioning of the government And the world had communism and the Soviet Union and Cold War. So again, there was a lot going on. And I know we don't have time, fortunately for you, uh, but I know we don't have time to go through all of this. I just want to try to help people understand and get a better basic grasp of why we went to Vietnam and why it was so publicly contested. Yeah, thanks for bringing it up. It's a subject that I I fully agree with you. Should remain in the American consciousness because there were powerful lessons learned from that experience that should be informing the decisions we as a society make today. That's one reason. And the other is because 58,220 Americans were killed and hundreds of thousands injured, and millions of Vietnamese killed, they deserve our respect. They deserve to be remembered. We need to understand what that was about. I wrote the book, and I'll talk about the conflict in just a moment. I wrote the book because I remember that period. I'm old enough to have lived through it and young enough not to have been drafted. I was a kid. But I remember how the war unfolded in those days on television every night. Everyone of a certain age can remember The Vietnam War was the first item on the news every single night. And they would show the battles. There would be embedded reporters flying in and out with the helicopters. And as an adult, so I, I knew something about the war, but I never understood how, in retrospect, it became so painfully clear that the war was a failed strategy. And the consequence of that failed strategy was a lot of loss of human life, enormous treasure, Laws of confidence in government, just as you said. So I wanted in this book to explore what this was all really about. I chose to write the book, though, more specifically, in a way that allowed me to focus on the life of one person. And it was based on the understanding, and I'll tell you about him in a second, it was based on the understanding that each life has meaning and importance, and that every story matters and that when you begin to accumulate casualties, you lose sight of that. 58,220 Americans, okay, what does that mean? There's 58,220 stories, tragedies, losses. So Michael O'Donnell was a young American kid who was, uh, found his way into Vietnam like lots of kids did. He enlisted in part because he didn't want to, he, if, he's, if he got drafted, he'd have no control over what it was he did. So he enlisted and became a helicopter pilot. And he served in Vietnam for a year. No, he served, he, was, he, he died six months into his time in Vietnam. But he, when he was deployed in October of 1969, he was, he was a helicopter pilot. He flew a Huey, a slick, and his job was mostly to transport uh, soldiers in and out of battle and to uh, pick up casualties. And he did that every single day. 
the helicopter pilots had among the highest casualty rates of anyone in the war. While he was there, Michael was a songwriter and a poet, a good one. Before he went to Vietnam, he had made an album, and he was on his way to a career as a musician, a folk musician here in America. When he got to Vietnam and saw what was happening, he wrote about it. He wrote poems. And one of the poems, I came across it in a book. And I was so moved by that poem, I decided to learn more about this guy. And that's what led me to write this book. So the book operates at two levels. At one level, it tells the story of one guy who went to Vietnam and never came home. His helicopter was shot down in March of 1970, and he was listed as missing in action for 28 years. His family got the regular briefings that families get when they have a family member who's listed as missing in action, which means a couple times a year, they'd get a letter from the, uh, from the army telling them if any progress has been made in trying to locate their son. So they could never have closure. Uh, 28 years later, his, the remains of his, his helicopter were discovered in Cambodia. And two weeks before 9-11, he was buried with full military honors in Arlington Cemetery. I was interested in telling his story because it was illustrative of so many stories. And it therefore would give me the opportunity to help readers understand to your question, Kyle, what was this war really about? When Lyndon Johnson made the decision to escalate the war, or when Richard Nixon made the decision to pursue what he called peace with honor, or when General Westmoreland made the decision to engage in a war of attrition, what did that actually mean to the guys on the ground in Vietnam? So I took the story of Michael O'Donnell and placed it within the context of the geopolitical strategic decisions that our leaders were making to play out what actually happened on the ground to these people. In order, finally, I wanted to highlight how terribly consequential it is and what a profound responsibility it is as a leader to make decisions that affect the lives of others. No one knows better than you do the sacrifice that soldiers make to advance the goals of the nation. You don't ask, you do what you're asked to do. But you need to believe the people making those decisions care to make the best decision they can, even if it results in the loss of life. And the great obscene tragedy of Vietnam, and uh, General McMaster says this better than I do in his book about the subject, was that these leaders knew they were pursuing a strategy that would not succeed. They didn't have the courage to own the failure of the policy and stop doing it until thousands more people died. And the tragedy for us to learn from is we can do better than that. We must do better than that. There are times when war is necessary and you must put young people in the way of danger. But that should be done with the understanding that victory is possible, that that sacrifice is meaningful. And in Vietnam, that did not happen. Many people at the time did not believe the government could betray them in this way. So the country was divided. My country, right or wrong, I do what my president tells me to do. And then with time, we learned how much the government had been deceiving us. Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense, the architect of much of this, who was a very, very well-respected, brilliant man, himself conceded in his book, In Retrospect, published in 1995, I think. So 20 years after the American war was over that he knew early on this was a failure and it was a mistake, but they couldn't figure out how to get out of it. So I wanted to explore those issues in this book in a readable fashion. It's a story about one kid. And along the way, I hope people learn about why Vietnam was a lesson we should never forget. Wow. First of all, thank you for your time and effort to tell his story and to, to dive into his story, his sacrifice, and the point you made about when casualty numbers, when, when it, the numbers are labeled casualties, and it, it does become just a number. You are exactly right in the fact that we lose sight of the individual. When there's a casualty, or unfortunately and sadly, someone who is killed in action, 
serving their country. That is an empty spot at the breakfast table with their kids before school. That is a life that, just like everyone listening, they had parents who created them and they were born and they had a childhood. They went to class and school every day. They had friends. They grew up and got a job or joined the military and they had their own personality and they were a human being and not a casualty number. So that is such a great point. And to also add, you're exactly right about being a troop on the ground in foreign lands, whether it's preserving freedom or helping the people on the ground. I think it's safe to say that the vast majority of the time, the troops on the ground far from understand the big, complex, and at times convoluted reasons of why we are places. But I always try to stress to people, I didn't have to have a perfect understanding of the complexities of Afghanistan, nor did I. But what I know and what allowed me to confidently wake up and go on those patrols every day, knowing that my friends had been injured and killed the day and weeks and months before, is that no matter what those big complex reasons are, at the end of the day, we were there truly helping a suffering people. We were there helping the children that just wanted and longed to learn how to read but that were so scared of the repercussions from the Taliban and those oppressive, you know, regimes. The women that, you know, were buried up to their necks and stoned to death because they accidentally broke something in the home. Or they, you know, of course, with no court of law, you know, were um, suspected of, you know, fill in the blank. And, you know, with no one else to be in their corner, to hear them out, to even care if it was true or not, they met their end and the final seconds of their life from evil people with no hope or happiness. And the children that with no shoes on their feet, you know, every day from the moment they could walk, they left the mud hut that... and. And it's important to note, it's not their way of life. It's not that we were there wanting them to become America and wanting them to put on a suit every day and go to a nice job. Ultimately, we just wanted them to have hope and freedom and to wake up every day and have a happier sunrise than they did the day before. And so that, that was just another great point that, you know, a lot of times, most of the time, no matter what war, what era, what country, what language you speak, you know, there are always political movements and things that no one will ever understand except for the people in those decision-making rooms. But to look past that, you know, it is human beings suffering around the world. And aside from the policymakers, you know, we're just people trying to help our fellow human being. That's really beautifully said, Kyle. And uh, it makes the world of sense in, in helping us to understand what motivates people to put themselves in danger in that way to do good in the world. The idea that you can enrich and improve the lives of people you don't even know in service of this mission is an extraordinary human act. So I think you're right. And as you say, most soldiers in every war are not necessarily aware of what the decision makers, the policy makers are really doing. But they ideally have confidence that those decisions are being made responsibly mm -hmm. and with integrity, even if they're not always right. In Vietnam, that wasn't the case. In Afghanistan, it was, it was that there was, we understood what you we were trying to do and it was a different kind of moment. Um, I think it's also important to point out, and I wanted to explore this in my book, most of us, me included, can never understand or fathom what it means to be a soldier on the ground at risk every day like that. 
what it's like to live with your buddies at risk and dying around you and continue to function at the same time. You had to get up every day and put on your clothes and go to bat, go do what you're doing, meeting your responsibilities. What we do owe is gesture of respect and gratitude. And I'm, I'm very pleased to see that our society has learned to distinguish between policymakers and the soldiers who do the work. Mm-hmm. In Vietnam, they did not so well. And they very often blamed the soldiers for a bad war, which made it even worse. In this era, and you, of course, know much more about this than I do, it is my sense that most people understand and appreciate that we love our soldiers. We appreciate what they do. They make our lives possible, even if the decision makers aren't getting it right. And that's really important for us. That's absolutely accurate. I agree, and I feel that way as well. Um, I think, thankfully, as you're saying, we've got to a point where most people can and do distinguish the difference between the two. Is it safe to say that the main, I guess, if you had to say a main reason that Vietnam occurred was the fear of the idea and mindset of communism spreading? Or through your research, have you found that that was just a good way to get people on board? No, I think it was a legitimate fear that communism would spread like a virus and engulf the planet. And the geopolitical consequences of that would mean, in the eyes of the American government, that one country after another would fall under the sway of communism, which ultimately would be a bulwark for the Chinese and the Russians in the Cold War, Soviet Union, such that the American way of life would be at risk and that vast tracts of geography would be lost to us. If Vietnam fell, the next would be Indochina, next would be or one country after another throughout that region. And so the containment strategy was to try to keep communism from spreading like a virus. And what they didn't realize, of course, was that communism was doomed because it was a political idea that had no real longevity. And two, that you cannot impose on people a will they may not have. What the, what the Vietnamese thought of the Americans were that we were in their country. And many, many of the soldiers fighting in North Vietnam and for the Viet Cong, those were the, our enemies, they thought of us as they're defending their homeland. They didn't care a lot about communism, but they wanted, to, this is our country and our right to determine our destiny, and whether it's communism or not. So they did not have, even though they did not have the resources we had, we outpowered them exponentially in terms of war power. They had the will to defend their country, and they would do anything to, to do that. And our government didn't get it. They, the Westmoreland, the general at the time, thought, we're going to wear these people down, and they're going to go home because we're going to make them uncomfortable, and, and we have so much military horsepower. That's a profound mistake. The reason the Americans won the Revolutionary War was because we were committed to preserving and protecting our land, our place even though we were outgunned exponentially by the British. That's an old lesson, but we didn't remember it in Vietnam. So I think it was both containment, the issue of the advance of of, uh, communism, but also a profound misunderstanding of what we were really fighting about with the uh, the Vietnamese. An idea will always be the most powerful tool. (laughs) Beautifully said. And for the final question, sir, what would you like to pass on to those listening about art and what it means to the world? Well, thank you for the question. I have always loved art because of the way it helps me to understand something about the world around me in ways that there's no other, at least for me, no other means to do. And so a museum like the Metropolitan or any work of art, if we're open to it, will allow us to see things beyond our own experience. That when you look at a work of art, whether it was made in this moment or any other moment, in this country or anywhere else, you are inevitably looking at the vision, the creative energy, the passion of someone else who created it. And as a result, there's an opportunity for us to expand our own sense of the world, 
by experiencing a work of art freshly and with an open mind. And when you come to a place like the Met with all the art that we have on the walls and spend a day walking through the galleries, you have the chance to be transported time and again to different places and times that allow us to see not only things that are different from us, but as important, the ways in which we are all connected. Because every civilization is struggling with many of the same issues. We just solve those problems differently, or we express ourselves differently. But to learn that we have something in common with a civilization that lived thousands of years ago on another continent is, a, in my view, a very unifying thought, that we're all actually more related than we think. So ultimately, looking at art and having an open mind for all of us increases our sense of, of understanding and empathy for other people. And if we all did that a little bit more each day, we'd have a better planet. Well, just like the artists and their artwork who have left the world a, you know, a better place, uh, you have done that for the Met and you've impacted me, sir, and this has been fascinating. And uh, again, I just want to, I know your time is valuable. Uh, you've got a, a couple of responsibilities here. So I just want to really thank you for this time and this opportunity. And I'm really excited to educate those listening in the world about, you know, the Met and uh, the incredible job you've done. Well, thank you, Kyle. It's both a privilege and an honor to spend time with you. I've enjoyed the conversation enormously, and I'm so pleased you're here with us. So thank you. Thank you, sir. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. See you next time.